The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 7, our text is verses 7 through 13, so let's go ahead and read that passage. Romans 7, verse 7. It says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Blame shifting is as old as the Garden of Eden, right? Now, you know the story. Adam and Eve, uh, well, well, God gave Adam and Eve one very clear and very simple command. And they disobeyed the command, plain and simple. There, there's just no way uh, around that fact. But when God confronted Adam and Eve, did they take responsibility? No. Now, Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the snake. And uh, every child uh, has followed well in Adam and Eve's footsteps. And so, you know, your kids, kids can do the dumbest things, and it's never their fault, right? It's always someone else's fault. And we adults aren't a whole lot better. Have you ever hit your finger with a hammer and thrown the hammer because the hammer is stupid? You know, I, I mean, I've, I've done that. You know, and so the hammer is an inanimate object. The hammer did nothing wrong. I'm the one that hit my finger. But it feels a whole lot better to blame the hammer and throw the hammer across the yard. And, uh, and of course, we live in a culture that has turned blame shifting into a philosophical pillar. So someone can commit a horrible crime or, or do some terrible deed, and, and, and they want to declare, I'm not a bad person. That wasn't me that did it. It's all because of the environment I grew up in. It's all because of the people in my life. It's all because of, of, because of a, my, my lack of education or, or we might say your, your physiological or psychological challenges. And so we live in a culture where everyone is a victim. We are professional blame shifters. And our passage today begins with a question that that our society would be proud of. Paul asks, is the law sin? Can't you hear people in our day making this kind of complaint? Well, God, I wouldn't disobey your word so much if you didn't have so many rules. So it's your fault for having so many commands. 
And uh, it seems potentially like a valid complaint, actually, uh, in light of what Paul just said in verse 5. So verse 5 says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So, so someone might read that and say, See, it's the law's fault that I'm such a sinner. It's not my fault. Now that might be really appealing to our secular culture. But it would be highly offensive to any Jew. And it should be offensive to any Christian who loves the Bible. So, so is Paul saying that God's law is sinful? So, so remember last week, we, we looked at verses 1 through 6, and, and Paul talked there about the fact that we are no longer under the law of Moses. The law of Moses died with Christ. And, and he's talking then about uh, the, 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 the evidence or the, 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 con, the results of the law. And, and so we, we look at verse 5, and, and we might wonder, is Paul saying, again, that the law is sinful? And, and that question is going to dominate the rest of the chapter. If the law produces sin, is the law sinful? And, and Paul's going to respond that my biggest problem is not God's law. It's not my environment. It's not my body or anything else. My biggest problem is me. My biggest problem is my sin nature. And our passage is going to make four assertions along those lines. And the first assertion is that the law reveals our sin. Now again, verse 7 asks the big question that's going to dominate the chapter. Is the law sin? And as Paul has done uh, several times in Romans, he immediately answers the question by saying, may it never be. So, so Paul will not tolerate the thought that God's law is remotely to blame for my sin. Now, now verse 12 is going to eventually give the, the ultimate answer to, to that question by saying that, that the law is good. So verse 12 is going to say that the law is holy and righteous and good. But for now, in verse 7, Paul's going to address that question of is the law sin by, by first pointing out the fact that we need to know what pleases the Lord. So, so look at what he says at the, in the second part of verse 7. He says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have come, or excuse me, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, I don't know about you, but, but we might at first be a little bit nervous about saying, boy, I am so thankful that God forbids, forbids coveting in his law. After all, most of us don't like rules. We don't want people telling us what to do, and we just naturally want to do what we want to do. But Paul here says something that is a little striking. He says, I am thankful that God gave a command against coveting. And frankly, every true believer should agree with that statement. Now, now yes, God's commands are not always easy to obey. But, but if I love the Lord and I want to please Him, and I believe that God's will is always good, that, then I should believe that it is good that God has told me what is right and what is wrong. And of course, the Old Testament expresses that sentiment uh, often about the fact that God's law is good. So, classic statement is in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. 
The psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. We don't think that way a lot, right? That, that law restores the soul, but that's what the psalmist says. He says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. This is an incredible statement, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So folks, we should love God's law as, as God's gracious means of transforming our lives and as well of bringing us near to our God in heaven. And here in, in verse 7, Paul focuses specifically on the 10th commandment of the 10. So, so Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, this is what God told Israel. He said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his donkey or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, now this is a fascinating command among the 10 commandments that, that God originally gave. And it's fascinating because it's the only one of the ten that focuses exclusively on our desires. So it's not enough that you don't steal from your neighbor. It's not enough that you don't commit adultery with his wife. God says you must not desire the things that God has not given to you. So, so you must not envy specifically. Really, that's the idea. You must not envy what God has given to someone else instead of giving to you. And it, and it fits perfectly Paul's a point here in our passage because most people just naturally have a sense that stealing is wrong. I mean, they might steal, but we kind of just know that's a problem. But, but, but we don't necessarily think that coveting is wrong. But, but coveting ultimately is an assault on the goodness of God. When you covet what, what God has not given to you and given to someone else, you are saying that God has not treated you fairly. And as well, when you covet, you are not loving your neighbor well. Because instead of rejoicing in God's blessing on his life, you are demanding, you are wishing that God would instead give it to you. And, and we should be thankful that the law commands us not to covet. Because it is a means of God's grace to, to better help me love God. And as well, it's, it helps me to know how to better love my neighbor. I, I've got to drive that envy out of my heart. And I think as well, just on a practical note, I mean, coveting, if you, if you covet and you allow bitterness and envy to, to build up inside you, it will, it, will, it will destroy your heart slowly. It's like a slow, steady burn. And so Paul here makes the point that, that it is a good thing that God, for example, has told us not to covet. And so the law is not sinful. It's good that God has done that. But, but then the text takes a drastic turn in verse 8, which teaches that sin uses the law against us. Look again at what he says. He says in verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, excuse me, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, now this verse is one of those verses that, that just doesn't sound right. 
So, so how does God's commandment inspire sin? And what does Paul mean when he says, apart from the law, sin is dead? Now, those are two really big questions. Let's deal with the second question first. So, so we know that Paul cannot mean that sin literally does not exist without God's law. After all, uh, he said uh, back in chapter 5, verse 13, He said, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. So so the point there is, Paul says very clearly, sin was in the world from from the time of Adam and Eve all the way up to the Mount Sinai. And, And the way that we know that sin was in the world is because all the people that lived during that period of time, they all died. So, so therefore, we, we have to understand verse 8 not as meaning that, that literally sin does not exist without the law of Moses, but, but instead, I think the idea is, is really portrayed for us in, in verse 13. So, so Paul says in the second part of verse 13 that it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So, so, so that verse says that the law shows us what sin is. So, so coveting, for example. Did coveting exist before God gave that commandment on Mount Sinai? Of course it did. In fact, coveting was, was one of the things that drove Adam and Eve to commit the very first sin. They, they wanted something that God had not given to them. And that desire drove them to disobey. So so coveting had been around a long time. But the 10th commandment showed us that it is sinful. And, And again, that's a good thing, right? Because we want to know what pleases God. But, but it also means that now that I have this knowledge that coveting is sin, Well, it's not just an expression of evil desire. When I covet, I am now rebelling against God. I am disobeying his will. And so the law, when Paul says that sin was dead before the law, and that that the law made sin come to life, the point is, is that the law created the knowledge of sin. And it also, in some sense, made sin more severe. Because it's not just a sin of ignorance, it is now a sin of rebellion because I know what God says and I still do it. So so it makes the the transgression more severe and it creates the knowledge of sin. And and beyond that, uh, because our sin nature is so dirty and so deceitful, verse 8 says that the law produces in me coveting of every kind. Now, Now, this is the idea, again, we talked about this last week, this is the idea of forbidden fruits. And so all of us, at some point in our lives, I'm sure, have done something simply because there was a rule telling us not to do it. All right, so so the example I used last week is, you know, your mother has some expensive vase sitting on an end table. And you're five years old, you have no interest in that vase. But the moment your mom says, don't touch the vase, you want to touch it. And you also want to see how cool it would be if it shattered on the ground, right? Because we all have sinful, deceitful hearts. 
And and so verse 8 drives home the simple fact that my sin nature, not the law, is ultimately to blame for my sin. Now, Now it is absolutely true that things like your environment, things like influences, things like education, even things like physiological and psychological impairments, all those things can make it harder to do what's right. But, but the Bible teaches that your sin is always your fault. And just to drive this home and, and to build on this a bit, keep your finger here, but turn to James chapter 1. I think James chapter 1 complements our passage in some really important ways. James 1 And I want to read verses 12 through 18. So so James has been talking a lot about trials up to this point. And he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation Or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creation. So, so in context here again, Paul is, or excuse me, James is talking about trials. And sometimes we go through incredibly difficult trials. And when we go through a difficult trial, we we might be, be tempted to accuse God of tempting us with sin by the trial that we are enduring. That, that's the concern that he has. You know, God puts, this, puts cancer in your life, and, and you view that cancer as God tempting you to sin. And, and James strongly denies that possibility. He says there that, that we cannot go there because God is good. God only gives good gifts. That's, that's what he says at the end of the passage. God only gives good things. And in verse 13 says, as a result, God never tempts us with sin. So where does the fault for my sin lie? Well, verse 14 says, we are tempted when we are carried away and enticed by our own lust. It starts inside me. So, so, so even the trials that God allows are good because they are for my sanctification. And and so God never tempts me. No, temptation always springs from inside me. So so I want to say compassionately, but but very clearly, that that, that my sin is never God's fault. And if you are going through some hard circumstance, it is not God's fault if you are bitter at Him about the things that you are enduring. It is your fault. You know, probably because you, you have, you are, your lust for comfort has become more important to you than sanctification and the nearness of God. And, and so we have to see where our sin comes from. It, it comes from the inside. 
And similarly, our text, Romans 7, is saying that God's law is good because God only gives good gifts. But, but my sin, all right, and my rebellion against God can twist a good thing like God's law into a source of rebellion. And then verses 9 through 11 follow with a story, really, of how this occurs. So back in Romans chapter 7, let's, let's read again verses 9 through 11. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now, I'm going to go ahead and mention now, and uh, this is going to come up, uh, Lord willing, today, but, but as well the next couple of weeks, that, that Romans 7 is probably the most debated chapter in the book of Romans. There, there, is, there are whole books, whole books, massive sections of commentaries that, that are built around debates uh, specifically concerning Paul's testimony here in verses 9 through 11, and then the testimony that he's going to give in verses 14 through 25. And, and, the, and the debate is around a couple of things. So first of all, who is Paul talking about? Is he talking about himself? Or, or uh, some believe he's talking about Israel and Mount Sinai, and then some even believe he's talking about Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, now you might reply, well, that's a stupid question, because he talks about I and me, so he's clearly talking about himself, all right? But, but the challenge is, is that if Paul is talking about himself here, well, well, how can he say in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law? After all, the law was around a long time before Paul was born, all right? And, um, and so that's why some people think Paul's talking about the prohibition that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden, that they were alive, God gave them the law, they disobeyed it, and then sinned, or, or Israel at Mount Sinai, that they were basically innocent before God, God gave the law, and then they transgressed. And, and it's, it's a massive debate that we're not uh, going to get into too much today, but, but those theories do solve a couple of problems, but, but I think most people agree that the simplest way to understand this passage is that Paul is indeed talking about himself. And I think there are some parallels uh, between Paul's story here and, and Adam and Eve in the garden and Mount Sinai, and, and we can draw some of those things. I'll, I'll probably point a couple of those things out. But, but the simplest way to understand our text, which is always where we ought to go, right? The simplest explanation is that Paul is talking about his own experience, right? But if Paul is talking about himself, well, that raises another big question. What part of his life is he describing? So, so is he describing his life as, as a Pharisee trying to earn the righteousness of God? Is he describing his conversion? Or is he describing his struggle as a Christian to obey God's law? And as well, another piece of the pie is, do verses 9 through 11 describe the same stage of his experience as verses 14 through 25, all right? There's a lot going on here. Now, now, we'll get to verses 14 through 25, Lord willing, next week. But for now, I am confident that verses 9 through 11 are, are intended to describe Paul's life 
as a legalistic Pharisee. So, so he's not talking here about his life as a Christian. He's talking about his, his former life before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And I'm going to explain that as we go. So, so notice that Paul describes three stages in his frustrating struggle to obey the law. So the first stage is life. So Paul says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Now, now again, that sounds like a curious statement. Because when was Paul alive and the law did not exist? Well, from a literal standpoint, that was never the case. So, so the law was around roughly 1,400 years before Paul was born. And as well, Romans 5 teaches that all people are born under Adam's condemnation. So, so Paul cannot literally mean that there was a time in his life when he was alive and there was no law. No, I think, what the, 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 I think the best explanation is that he is remembering his time as a child before he comprehended the law and the law's demands on his life. So, so it's not that he wasn't literally spiritually alive, uh, but, but, but he, wasn't, uh, he, he wasn't literally spiritually alive, uh, but, but he, was, he wasn't living in open rebellion against God's law. Because a little child can't comprehend God's law and, and can't comprehend its demands on his life. And, and so a little child uh, is not even trying to live up to God's law. And, and so, so you could say in the words of, of, of chapter 5, verse 20, that transgression hadn't increased because there was no knowing disobedience of God's law. But of course, you know, Paul grew up in a, in a devout uh, Jewish family. He probably began learning the law at a very young age. And as he learned the law, he aspired to achieve it. He aspired specifically to earn salvation by the law. And that leads to the second stage in his story, which is deception. So Paul says that the commandment came. And the idea is, is that as Paul grew older, he came to understand God's demands. And verse 10 says that he understood the law as a means of life. And Paul believed that if I obey this law perfectly, I can earn a place in heaven. Now, I think it's important to be clear that Paul was actually, he was technically right in that belief. So, uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verses 4 and 5, uh, God said to Israel, you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accordance with them. I am the Lord your God, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments. And then notice, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. And Galatians 3 actually affirms this as well, that, that if someone could perfectly keep the law, they could earn eternal life. But what's the problem? Well, the problem was, is that Paul didn't account for his sin nature. So, so when he took off on this journey to perfectly keep the law, he, he didn't understand his sin. And the fact that there's no way that people like us could keep the law perfectly. And sadly, multitudes continue to make the same exact mistake that Paul made. They think that they can earn the righteousness of God and earn a place in heaven. And so there are people all over the place 
who have given themselves to, to achieving the righteousness of God and heaven because of the good works that they do. But tragically, instead of earning a place in heaven, the opposite occurs. Verse 9 says that when the commandment came, sin became alive. Verse 10 says the commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death. Verse 11 says sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me. That's strong language, isn't it? And so instead of producing life, Paul's legalistic pursuit became a death trap because sin deceived him. Now, how is that? Well, well, the law inspired rebellion, not righteousness, because of Paul's sin nature. And as well, that what before were sins of ignorance now became acts of transgression to specific commands. And on those rare occasions where Paul actually did live up to the demands of the law, he was filled with pride and self-righteousness. He talks about that in Philippians chapter 3, that, that, that in his life as a Pharisee, he didn't boast in God, he boasted in himself and all that he had achieved. And so sin deceived Paul. What he thought was a path to life was instead a path to condemnation. And as a result, the third stage in his journey was death. Verse 9 says, I died. Verse 10 says, it resulted in death for me. Verse 11 says, it deceived me and through it killed me. So no sinner can achieve the righteousness of God on his own. The more you try to escape God's condemnation through your own good deeds, the deeper you sink. You know, legalism is, is sort of like quicksand. And the more you struggle to get out, the more you get pulled down. Now, now, I doubt that anyone in this room is trying to earn heaven by keeping the law of Moses. Now, most of us are, are Gentiles, not Jews, and probably no one here is trying to do that. But you might be trying to earn a place in heaven by some other religious system. So, so you've got some code and some religion you're involved in and you and you believe that by saying a certain set of prayers and by going through certain religious rituals and doing certain good deeds that that you can live a good enough life that god will let you into heaven someday now maybe it's not that you're keeping some other religious system maybe you're trying to you've created your own law your own sense of what is required of god and and so you're trying to live up to your own standard in order to earn eternal life and so if I were to ask you, do you believe you're going to heaven someday? Well, you would answer with, with all the good things that, that you're doing based on what you believe God would demand for someone to earn a place in heaven. But regardless, God says that you are deceived. You know, legalism, the idea that I can earn eternal life is one of Satan's dirtiest tricks because he, he makes you believe that righteousness is in reach. You look at it and you think, I could do that. You think you're making progress. But what you don't realize is that you are being pulled deeper and deeper into condemnation every day. And no one can be saved by keeping any law. The only way we can be saved is to humble ourselves before the Lord 
Admit that I can never do good enough good. And, and just rest in Christ alone. And so if you have not done that, you have not put your faith in Christ, please receive Him today because you have no hope of getting to heaven based on your good works. So, so verses 9 through 11 tell Paul's tragic personal story of attempting to earn salvation through the law. I mean, sin abused the law and destroyed him. And it has done the same thing time after time after time. And so please do not let that happen to you. And then verse 12 follows with Paul's third assertion, which is simply that the law is good. Now, now remember that the passage began by asking, is the law sin? And Paul has emphatically, emphatically replied that the problem is not the law, sin is the culprit. So, so the law, and I think this is important to be clear about this, the law will not ultimately be responsible for anyone being in hell. In fact, I think you could extend it out and say that God will not be responsible for anyone being in hell. Now, death and judgment are never God's fault. And when the Bible looks for someone to blame or somewhere to go for blame for, for suffering and evil and death and condemnation. It's not God's fault. It is sin's fault. So if you want to be mad about suffering and evil and death, be mad at sin because sin is the culprit. And I think just you know, as, a, as an application to that, you know, when someone we love dies without Christ, you know, Satan wants you to be angry at God that that person never got saved. But, but James 1 says that God only gives good gifts. God never gives anything bad. And so don't let Satan twist the sovereignty of God into God being culpable for someone's rejection of him. James 1 is adamant that God is never at fault. So, so that said, in verse 12, Paul, Paul finally gets around to completing his answer to the question he raised in verse 7. And he says, the law is not sin. No, instead, verse 12 says, so then the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so, and so God's law, first of all, is holy. In the sense that, that it is distinct like God is. The law is different from, from a sinful world, and it is always pure and holy like God is. And secondly, he says that the law is righteous. Now, are our nation's laws ever unjust? Do our nation's laws ever reward the wrong behavior and encourage the wrong things to take place? Absolutely. Now, our laws are oftentimes unjust, but God's law is never unjust. God's law is always true. God's law always encourages the right things and punishes the wrong things. And then third, he says that God's law is good. Now, that's one that, that might be a bit surprising. But, but God says here that his law is good, meaning that God's law comes from His generosity and His kindness. God is good. He is generous and kind, and His law proceeds from that part of His character. 
And so this is a good reminder to us that God's law is not designed to make your life miserable, to shut down all the fun, and to to bore you with meaningless, frustrating demands. That's never God's purpose. No, God's law is inspired by generous wisdom. And so the best path, the best path, to knowing God, and to enjoying His blessings is through His Word. And that's why God gives the law. Now, now you might be a little confused at this point. Well, well, Pastor, didn't you say last week that the law is dead? And I did, all right? So, So we are not under the law of Moses. We as Christians today are under the law of Christ. All right, so, so remember that fact. Now, now, you might as well be confused. Well, 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 well if, if the law is good, then, then how in the world can, can it be a tool that, that is used by sin for so many bad consequences? I mean, if the law condemns all these people, then, then why should I see it as a good thing? And I think we need to understand as we think about God's law that the new birth radically changes the function of the law in someone's life, right? The new birth radically changes the function of the law in someone's life. So so the unbeliever is dead in sin. He has no power in himself to please God. And, And so for him, the law only brings the knowledge of sin and it brings condemnation. But if you are born again, and you have the power to obey God's law, you have the power to obey God's law. And so for a Christian, God's law, instead of bringing condemnation, becomes a path to to blessing, to walking right with the Lord and enjoying His goodness and His joy. That's why the Psalms repeatedly are are thankful for for the law of God. You know, Psalm 19 rejoices in the law and, and lots of other places. I mean, Psalm 119, for example, gives thanks for God's law because the, the new birth transforms the law's function in a person's life because it gives us power to obey and it becomes an avenue to please the Lord. And, and that's important to remember because, because, again, at times we resist the law's authority in our life, the, the law of Christ. Now, I want to do my own thing. We don't like the cost of obedience or the complications that obedience can bring. I mean, sometimes obedience is tricky. Sometimes, you know, I was just, uh, we, uh, this week we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with our kids. You know, the first and second commandment really complicated Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's life. You know, 20 seconds, a minute of just falling down would have made their lives a whole lot easier. And so oftentimes, we are resistant to God's law. But we have to remember that God's will is always good because God is good. And no pleasure of sin, no convenience of compromise can match the nearness of God that we enjoy when we are walking according to His will. So give thanks for the boundaries that God has provided in His Word. If you've ever played a sport, you understand this. You know, the rules that govern a game don't ruin the game. They give you freedom to enjoy the game. And it's the same with God's law. God's God's Word, it gives guidance that allows us to enjoy His blessings. So, So give thanks. God's Word is good, and it comes from perfect wisdom.
And then finally, verse 13 concludes the passage with Paul's fourth assertion, which is that the law drives us to Christ. So, so verse 13 says, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, now this verse uh, begins by, uh, again, adamantly denying that there is anything wrong with the law. Sin is the problem, not God's law. But you might think, well, fine, all right, there's nothing technically evil about God's law. But, I mean, God's law has served uh, to, to condemn so many people to hell. And so does the law do anything good for the unbeliever? I mean, what good is the law for the billions of people who are unregenerate and condemned to hell? Well, those are good questions. And verse 13 answers that the law serves a gracious purpose even among those who are lost. And the argument proceeds really in two phases. First of all, the law reveals my helpless condition. The law reveals my hopeless condition. Now, notice the purpose statements at the end of that verse. He says it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. And then so that the command, through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. And so Paul says that the law shows us our sin. It affects my death. And as a result, my sin becomes utterly sinful. And so the law shines a light on my depravity. It demonstrates the infinite gap between a holy God and a sinner like me. And that's important because as we've talked about, a lot of people out there think that they are pretty good people and that they deserve a home in heaven. Why wouldn't God love me? Why wouldn't God want me in heaven with him for as lovely and glorious as I am? But, 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 but the law serves to demonstrate that all of us are rebels against God's will. The law sets a high standard. And in setting that high standard, it shows us that we cannot earn salvation. Chapter 3, verse 20 was right when it said that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But you might say, well, that, well great, all right? So, so people can look at God's law and see that there's sin, but how does that benefit them? Well, the answer is that underneath the argument of verse 13 is a very important assumption, that my hopeless condition drives me to Christ. So as long as someone thinks he's okay with God, then he will never believe the gospel. And people have to understand they're lost before they will ever trust in Christ and be saved. We have to come to the end of ourselves before we will ever fully rest in Jesus. And maybe that's what you need to do today. You've always thought of yourself as a pretty good person. And so if I were to ask you, do you believe you're going to heaven? You'd say, I think so. And then I asked you, well, why do you think you're going to heaven? You'd start to say, well, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and, you know, I was baptized and I've done this and that and I haven't done this thing over here and I haven't done that thing over here and and, and your answer to the question would, would immediately turn to your character and your good deeds and all the things that you've done and not done. And, and, and God says in verse 13 that you are utterly 
sinful. You're not a good person. And it teaches that any effort you might make to achieve salvation only affects your death. That's really hard news to accept. That that I am not good in myself and I can't earn the favor of God. But folks, it is a gracious, loving mercy of God that he tells you the truth. And and God's law is here to, to to say to you that you cannot get there. So, so, so please admit that you have sinned against God and that your sin is not a small thing, is rebellion and, and that you fall short of the glory of God. Because only when you do that can you look to Christ and be saved. And we would love to talk with you today and, and share from God's word what Jesus did on the cross and how what Christ accomplished can do for you what you can never do for yourself. You need to rest wholly in what Christ accomplished. And if you are saved, never forget who you were on your own. There is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. So give thanks that God loved you in your sin, that Jesus died in your place, and that he drew you to himself. And then live each day in the power of God's grace. You know, love God's law. Love God's word, dive into it with a heart to know what God's will is and to obey him. And then love other people enough to share with them both the hard news of the gospel, that they are condemned sinners, and the good news that there is salvation in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for its rich truth. And Lord, we thank you for your grace Uh, both in revealing to us the bad news of our sin and also the good news that there is life in Christ. Lord, I pray for any who are here who do not yet know Jesus as Savior. I pray that today they'd be born again. And Lord, for those of us who know you, help us, God, to love your word, to love the commandments that you've given to us. And Lord, help us to see them as a means of life and blessing And help us, God, this week in the strength of your grace to obey and to please you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.